Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, and you've picked a great time to tune into this month's episode because we're continuing the discussion on something that's very important for those with an interest in wildlife management and those particularly that have interest in quail. We're going to continue our discussion on Aldo Leopold's five tools of game management. To help us do that, as always, is Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello, Dale. Hey Gary, I hope that uh, after the last podcast, some of you have read up a little bit on Aldo Leopold, maybe read a Sand County Almanac, maybe even purchased his old book, you can still get it online, uh, about 1933 in game management. And again, he was one of the real um, foreseers, if you will, of, uh, of what's gonna happen over the next 50 years kind of thing. And he said it in such an eloquent way that as you read it, if you have any interest in conservation, you're going to say, this guy knows what he's talking about, and I wish it was more widely known about. So I'm always quoting, uh, I'm always quoting Aldo Leopold, and, and again, for this series of podcasts, I'll repeat this one. We said it last time, but the central thesis of game management is this. Game can be restored by the creative use of the same tools which have heretofore destroyed it, and he named those as the axe, the plow, the cow, the fire, and the gun. And we're going to focus on the plow and the cow. And for Texas, I can't think of two words that better describe land ownership and production agriculture in Texas. Well, and university training. That's true. They talk about, you know, you you go to Aggieland or whatever, and historically it was plows and cows kind of thing. So those are very widespread um, enterprises and tools that can have very widespread impacts on wildlife habitat, or if they're compromised a little bit and tailored a little bit, they can be very much of a positive for that. So again, the creative use is, is a very key phrase there. And we'll start out with uh, grazing management because if you think about what the major land use is on Texas, it's grazing, beef right. cattle. And that in itself is probably one of the reasons why Texas is still the the Alamo of quail conservation because so much of South Texas and so much of West Texas, it wasn't suitable for cultivation or it would have been cultivated, uh, but it's managed as grazing land and cattle and quail can be very compatible. I'll talk about some gives and takes in that in a minute, but by the fact that our landscape for the most part is grazing land by cattle if we, if we know when to say when, that can be very compatible with good quail habitat. And I just I like to start this by saying, you know, everybody says, oh yeah, I've got cows and I've got quail. Well, having cows and quail at the same time is not necessarily saying we're using cows to foster quail habitat. So again, as I ask a landowner, where are your goals relative to livestock and wildlife? I want to know because some of the things I mentioned may be repulsive to him if I'm saying, you know, you really need to cut your stocking rate back by 80%, that's not going to happen. But if he's over on the far left where he's trying to maximize his quail, a, a big reduction in stocking rate may be one of the 
may want to be one of the useful tools. You kind of have to judge their motivation, what they're wanting to do. Exactly. And we talked last time about plant succession. Again, that predictable plant sense predictable process of change in plant communities. We're going to be using, again, soil disturbance in both of these topics today to talk about how we can manipulate the uh, plant community that we want. Now, again, if we're strictly into cattle production, well, we're probably going to be into tame grass, climbing grass, uh, weeping lovegrass, spar, blue stem, Bermuda grass. Those as monocultures are not friendly quail habitat. We're talking about native rangelands that have a diversity of plants out there. Then we've got a greater opportunity to use grazing as a viable tool in quail management. One of the things, Gary, and I've worked with ranchers all across the state. They're, they've probably been my primary clientele. And uh, one thing is I wrote a column in the Livestock Weekly for 20 years. And if there's such a thing as the Bible for a, ranch, a West Texas ranch manager, it's the Livestock Weekly. So I've gained a lot of exposure and a lot of friends, probably a few enemies, <laughs> but I've learned a lot by, uh, by interacting with those people and knowing that most of them are truly conservationists. And so they're interested in, in all kinds of wildlife, but I never find a species of wildlife that they like any more than their quail. And so I've always been very fortunate that, that I can address them. And sometimes in a not an antagonistic way, but I'm not slapping their back and saying you're doing a great job. When I go out with a, a rancher and I'm working as a consultant, I said, now, I, I got to set the table straight with you. Do you want me to tell you what you want to hear or do you want me to tell you what to think? Because you're paying me to tell me what to think. And most of them say, no, I want you to be honest. Tell me the truth. Kind of yes. Tell you the truth kind of thing. Um, I want to ask you a, um, well, the, the quote that I wanted to mention is, I often tell people that a rancher with bird dogs is a quail's best friend. Why is that? Well, think about it just a minute. A rancher with bird dogs. So what does that tell you his avocation is? Hunting quail. Hunting quail. What's his vocation? Making a living on Making that land. Making a living off the land and with beef cattle. So if, if he's thinking about, I really love to hunt quail during November, December, and I really need to clear X amount of brush or I need to increase, what am I going to do with my stocking rate for next year? He's weighing all those equations into this quail equation that I got to have X number of grass and, and I can tolerate prickly pear at this level. If, if you've got a grazing lessee and a hunting lessee, that's a recipe for headache. But when the landowner is both of those, he's most adept being able to appreciate and ameliorate those trade-offs that are going to occur between those. Makes so sense. I like to see a, a rancher with bird dogs. In fact, I've even thought about maybe we start a program where we make sure every rancher gets a bird dog, uh, and, and I think we'd have better quail hunting as a result of that. But um, I'm going to ask you a little IQ test. Gary. Oh, I went to Texas Tech. Is that I'm, okay? I did too. That's how I came up with the, with the IQ test. But I do this a lot when I'm uh, working with landowners and so forth to set the stage and make them think about wildlife versus livestock. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions and see how you do. Fill in the blank. I'll do my best. The hat makes the, the man. The hat makes the man, exactly. Now when I, and it could be the clothes make the man. But you can look at an individual pretty well and tell by what kind of headwear he's using, 
what his relatively relative interest is in cows versus quail. And so I always put the cow, I always put the cowboy hat on the political right because I got learned you never put the hat on the left. <laughs> and I got chastised for that. So let's imagine a line here and I've got an orange cap on the left and a cowboy hat on the right. Yes. And I ask you, where do you want to be on that continuum? Well, most of the clients that I deal with in your typical extension audience are going to be here about three quarters. Yes. They're going to say, well, we're interested in wildlife and I've got a hunting lease here generating some revenue, mm -hmm. but my love is cows. I understand. And then over here on the far left, you'll say, I wouldn't care if I had a cow out here and I wouldn't have one if Rollins didn't say I needed one. And I don't have to have cows out here to maintain my ag use valuation anymore. I can do that with wildlife. That's true. So you've got those two extremes. And then as you move towards the middle, you've got the individual that says, I want to manage for cows and quail, 50-50. And then I'll say, which one of these guys has the most difficult position? And most of them will say, this person over here. But I'll say the person in the middle, the one that's saying he's trying to serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. So that leads to the question, you can't have your cake and... Eat it too. Eat it too, but a lot of us want to. You gotta recognize what the trade-offs are gonna be between cows and quail. Beauty is in the eyes of the... Beholder. Uh, you're doing great, Gary. So what does that mean? Well, if you ask, if we looked out of a, at a landscape of 5,000 acres from a hill here, and I said, what do you want that to look like? You can appreciate that some of them are gonna say, I don't want any mesquite out there. One of them is gonna say, I wanna save that one bull mesquite out there in the middle for shade for my bulls. But if I'm a quail hunter, I'm gonna say, well, I won't leave scattered brush all across that about a softball throw apart. So we just gotta appreciate that different strokes have different, different folks have different strokes. And I tell people, if they will tell me what kind of goals they want, I can help them design a management plan that will address those goals, especially if they're quail friendly. Where you stand on an issue usually depends upon... Where you live? Where you sit. Where I you found sit. this one on the back of the men's room door in Grape Creek, Texas, and it's always stuck with me. So it just tells us that our personal perspective has a lot to do with the, with the actions that we choose. Amidst toils and troubles, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's, there's no place, place like home. So again, while we may think that uh, some brushy, prickly pear looking country looks terrible, if I'm a bob white quail, that may look like heaven to me. So we gotta look at it through the eyes of our species du jour. Let's see, the, yeah. oh, getting into the botanical ones, and this gives them fit sometimes. A weed is a blank. I don't know. Well, agronomically speaking, a weed is a plant out of place. Plant Any plant out of, place. out of place. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that what is weed but a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered. So again, from my perspective, I've got to talk about things that they want to cast as pariahs like prickly pear, like broomweed, and I have to come in and, and serve as a public defender and say, well, you know, really these plants produce a lot of things that are important for quail. And just to that effect, I had a cadence back in the Bob White Brigade that went like this. Many ranchers do declare they've got too much prickly pear. It's a thorny plant that they despise, but it sure looks good to a quail hen's eyes. So again, making them appreciate different perspectives. I uh, 
I harken back to 1989. I was on a range tour up in Wheeler County. And so we're going around talking about range and wildlife and plants. And you got to appreciate most farmer ranchers don't have much appreciation for what they call weeds, what I call forbs. And so we're walking through there and I'm waxing eloquently on things like um, western indigo. We're in a sandy soil. Sandy soils in the eastern panhandle are abundant with native legumes. Weeds to the guy that didn't know, but I know that they're good plants. And so we're standing about knee deep in grass burrs. Everybody knows what those are. Sure. And this one person, I'll never forget him, he had a caterpillar cap on and he walked up and he put up, pulled up some of those grass burrs and he put them right in my face. And he said, just what good are these for quail? And he caught me in a contradiction. Uh -oh. I'm on the horns of a dilemma here and beads of sweat are beginning to pop out on my head because I've only been on the job like 18 months. If he catches me in a lie, he's not only destroyed my credibility, but my idea that every plant out there has virtue. And I'm just on the verge of admitting, sir, I have no, absolutely no idea what good graspers are plants. But my colleague, J.F. Cadenhead, you may remember J.F., he was a weed specialist up at Vernon, and he said, they slow down bird dogs, don't they? <laughs> Touche. And I've been so enamored with that over years, I call that Cadenhead's Corollary, and thou shalt not judge the value of a plant alone by its food basis alone. Some plants are out there to provide other things than food. Cadenhead's Corollary, always be thinking about that. And then I got a quote from my preacher who I've done a number of times, Preacher Paul Sherrill over there at Southgate Church of Christ. I invite you all, if you're ever in San Angelo, come out and I'll take you to church. But he often says two things before a sermon. One is, I want y'all to know I'm not mad at any of you. He's saying, heed the message, but don't shoot the messenger. That may be important as we get into the second portion of this podcast about the farm bill. <laughs> but the first one, or the second one is, you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. That's right. And that works as much for our 15-year-old sons and daughters as it does on the back 40. I want to take you back to uh, Jack County in 1994, it had been dry year and I was talking on a range management program up there, 100 people there. I'm up on a little lectern, so it's like a sermon on the prairie. And my question was, and there weren't really any quail around up there, and so my question was, how many of you are mad at quail? Well, nobody's mad at quail. Well, I look at your land use around here and somebody must be mad at quail because it's overgrazed. It's just, you know, it's, it's not quail-friendly habitat anymore. So I kind of threw a little fire and brimstone at them, but I wanted to make them think. I wasn't mad at them. Challenged them. You know, I challenged them, and I wanted them to be able to see what's happened and that the one that's doing most of the happening, they got to look in the mirror because most of it's happening under their watch. And if they're interested in quail, they may need to tweak that or change it uh, pretty dramatically. Um... And the biggest thing up there was overgrazing, which I, I consider overgrazing a sin. It's probably the most pervasive reason that's happened to quail habitat over the, in Texas. That or too much brush control. And again, both of those, the creative use of those can be used positive, but the more commonly used or abused way is not quail friendly. Um, and it often brings up the questions. Questions like, do cows and quail compete? 
And I'll ask the group that. And they'll think about it and I said, you know, they're shaking their heads, no, cows and quail don't compete. Cows eat grass. Grass, quail eat seeds, seeds, by and large. Well, so they're compatible. Well, but if the cows eat all the grass, what are the quail gonna nest in? True. So there there's sometimes it's just a little bit more intricate uh, the, the argument or the relationship is not always as clear as what you think. So think about what those implications are. Free to choose your actions, not free to choose the consequences. And there's a um, Bob White, another Bob White Brigade uh, cadence that goes like this. Texas ranchers, they've got class. Bob White quail nest in bunch grass. Cattle grazing is okay if it's done the proper way. So again, we can take some aspects of grazing management most commonly our stocking rate. Most, I'll say many, I suspect most, West Texas rangelands are overstocked. And, you know, there, there are figures available at your local NRCS office that says if you've got this kind of potential or they'll do, come out and do a conservation plan on your ranch and your average stocking rate should be 40 acres per annual unit, 40 acres per cow. Most of them are stocked at tw twice that. From my standpoint, if I want cattle for a tool for quail management, I want to undergraze, not overgraze. And I'll probably suggest if the NRCS recommended rate is 40, I'd probably say 60 acres per cow because I want to be very conservative. Now you might say, well, I'm not rich enough to afford that. If you do your homework, you can actually make more at a lower stocking rate because you're doing away with one of your most expensive inputs and that's been supplemental feeding, especially okay. winter feeding. Okay. So take a, take a good look at some of those trade-offs between stocking rate, gain per acre, gain per head, and study those relationships and then chances are you can, you can move that stocking rate back to a little bit lighter. That's going to be a better quail hunting situation at a lighter stocking rate. So you may be, may be able to compensate if I've dropped my game per acre by $3, but I could have picked up a $5 an acre quail lease. So be able to do the math on those kinds of things. Um, there, I was trained as a range manager, and I'll never forget taking range management classes up at Oklahoma State University, and they'd talk about the four cardinal rules of grazing management. Those would be the proper kind and class of animals. You can't necessarily expect if you're running sheep as opposed to cattle to get the same results, so know what you want to run. Uh, the, the proper season of use, the proper grazing distribution, but by far the most important is the proper stocking rate. So understand that, understand what the impacts are gonna be out there on the back 40. One of the things that your typical range guy, and your typical range guy is is trained with livestock grazing being the primary use of land. How's a little different? I was always thinking about it on the wildlife side. But they they speak in ill terms of things like spot grazing. That's one of the worst evils if you're a range manager is that cattle are gonna select this area and they're gonna graze it down. So we wanna promote uniform grazing. And we talk about salting the feed and not the water. We'd like to see a uniform cover of vegetation out there, eight inches high, let's say. From a quail standpoint, that's not what I want. I want what we call spatial heterogeneity. I want some 
mixing up. I want some different types of plants and different heights. I want some grasses, some weeds, and there are some things that we can do with what we call patch burn grazing. We've done this at the research ranch. Where we'll burn small portions of a pasture, put the cattle in there, those cattle are gonna preferentially graze those burned areas. And we can create a different plant response, which we would say would be very good brooding cover for bobwhite chicks, but right across the fire break is areas that's hardly grazed at all, so there's your nesting cover. Creativity, again, can be something that you can adapt to a lot of this. You gotta be careful with um, what we, what people would say, You what kind of range condition class. You want excellent condition rangeland, poor condition rangeland. If I'm in Victoria and I'm interested in quail, I want fair condition rangeland. That okay. means I'm, I'm grazing pretty hard because I'm getting 45 inches of rain and the grasses keep wanting to take over. Yes. If I go to Fort Stockton, I'm getting 10 inches of rain and I'm gonna lighten my stocking rate out there so I want a higher condition range class. And, and I've got a, a webisode on this at quailresearch.org that goes into some of this in oh, more good. detail, so you may want to check that out. But uh, you just need, again, to be be familiar with the idea or appreciate the idea that you can have cows and quail at the same time, but you can't maximize both at the same time. So understand what those trade-offs are and recognize and appreciate the trade-offs if both cows and quail are important to you. And over the course of the year, those strategies and those techniques change as the needs of quail change during the course of the year? Well, as much as anything in West Texas, whether or not we're in La Nina or El Nino weather conditions, because that's that impacts a lot. So if, we, if we're into an El Nino drought situation, one of the things I gotta do as soon as I can is decrease my stocking rates. That'll get into something, at some point in time, we'll talk about Hippocratic management, about how some of our farm programs, emergency feed programs, allow us to keep cattle out there, and that just continues to hammer the range. So we'll talk about that at another time. Very good, very good. The other term that Aldo Leopold uh, fashioned as part of his five tools is really the plow, uh, and that involves production agriculture, big business in Texas, as you know, and, and such an important economic factor, but uh, the plow's a great wildlife management tool as well. It can be. And again, you know, if you, if you think of the scale of the impact of commercial agriculture on the state of Texas, it's huge. And you look at areas like the High Plains and different parts, and there's just little pockets of quail habitat left because uh, it, it went from being a, one of the land uses to the land use, fence line to fence line kind of thing, uh, intensive use of, uh, of it, intensive use of pesticides again so there are some as you push the system it becomes less and less friendly to quail and so again there are bits and pieces that we can glean from that and say I can use that in a creative sense to be good for quail but I can't maximize no more than I can maximize beef and quail I certainly can't maximize cotton production and quail at the same time so typically, you've got one group, you've got a farmer that's interested in the cotton production, the guy next to him may have an interest in quail, but, but again, recognize and appreciate there, there are some dilemmas there. Um, you know, go back, neither one of us are old enough, but we can look at those old yearbooks of agriculture. Right. You've got those in your library and so forth, and those are a treasure trove, I think, of old photographs and being able to look at what happened you know, before and during the Depression and the Dust Bowl and so forth. Uh, contrast those scenes 
with today's scenes. And again, it was small acreage landscape, small acreage agriculture, 20 acre pea patch, that kind of thing. That's very friendly to a quail because they didn't have the means to keep the weeds out of them. So you had a 20 acre pea patch with careless weeds in them and other things, all the things that we might try to do purposely now, uh, as opposed to again, 70 years later, and we've got uh, large scale, let's really get after the weeds and so forth. And so it, it's just a different ball game uh, relative to what uh, today is. Today, and really for the last 30 or 40 years, weed is a four letter word. And it's not for quail because when you say weed, I'm thinking careless weed, tumbleweed, those kind of things. And those have no benefit to you as a farmer but they do have benefits for quail. I often chide our county agents, and I worked for county, with county agents for 40 years. I'd walk into one of them's office and there'd be a poster up behind their desk, common weeds in Texas pastures. And I'd always tell them, let me see a bottle of white out, because I'm gonna change that to say key food plants for quail. It was like a most wanted poster, and, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> I, when I ask, the county agents, I said, what are the two most common questions you get about a weed? And I say, it's what is it? And how do I kill it? How do you kill it? <laughs> I said, you ought to at least insert one other question in there. What is it good for? Because sometimes, again, the weeds are not as bad as what you think, and they are providing values. You know, we usually just think about, okay, what's it doing for a quail? But what is a phrase or a, a group of organisms that's really become in the spotlight over the last five years? Pollinators. Yes. And so, again, sometimes the things milkweed. that we're doing, the milkweeds, uh, various plants like that, and our beehives and so forth, those, we, we gotta appreciate, there are critters out there that have been doing some things that we haven't fully appreciated, and most of our intensive strategies work to their detriment kind of thing. So that's another reason besides quail, what we ought to be doing. Um, let's get into the farm bill programs a little bit because a sure. lot of people, uh, the, I mean the farm bill is huge yes. kind of thing. We know that it's huge in Texas, huge over much of the U.S. And there are some states that are really hanging their hat on the fact that the farm bill could be our savior in places like Kentucky uh, that uh, intensively um, ag situation and can we use programs like equip and whip and crp and can those be our salvation mm -hmm. and certainly in texas uh, equip is a huge program that allows ranchers to do various things everything from brush control to water developments and things so oftentimes those are developed and again improving grazing distribution which really doesn't work in the favor of quail so as you think about that, again, think about how to creatively use those tools to benefit. Work with your NRCS office and your local FSA office, but I would recommend you go to the NRCS office first because they're gonna be more technically knowledgeable about what can we do. If I'm interested in improving quail habitat, what should I be doing? And then once I find out what I can do within their state specs, then I go over to my NR, I go over to my FSA office and say, I'd like to do this, but I'd like to do these programs. Now, when you have programs like the CRP, and that was like four million acres in the rolling plains and the high plains, what happens too often is that when a program like that is announced, it's very popular, 
those local field offices get deluged with applications and they're oftentimes not very interested in trying to be creative they're just trying to get them stamped and get them push the paperwork push the paperwork kind of thing and that's unfortunate there's been a bit of a change in that over the last several years a number of NRCS offices now have a farm bill biologist typically employed by uh, quail forever and so that individual is there to help them with their workload but to make it more quail friendly and more creative about how to apply that on the landscape. So if you've got one of those farm bill biologists, get to know that individual and have them help be a liaison as you move in uh, to your FSA office with questions. I, while we were talking about the, the cow situation, I encourage you that a quail's best friend is a rancher with bird dogs. Right. There seems to be a disconnect with farmers. We don't have that same level of interest in quail hunting and with if you don't have a motivation for quail hunting i.e. owning a bird dog quail are always going to be second to your second or third down the line kind of thing so again i encourage those of you that that are farmers and and work with farmers or has farmers as brothers or brother-in-laws like i do that you want to try to take them quail hunting and develop that love for that passionate sport and to also recognize that our quail hunting is going down at a pretty alarming rate and even if you never hunt if you could go to uh, Rockwall County and over here east of Dallas and sit out there on the back porch and hear three bob whites whistling that's going to bring back so many great memories and it's going to be it's going to be uh, intangible on your bottom line but it's going to be a big tangible on your quality of life so Think about, the as we talk about axe plow, cow fire, and gun, think about ways that you can be creative with those tools and help to generate better quail and quail habitat for your property. The last as aspect of the plow as it relates to quail management is with food plots. Well, okay. We're intentionally planting, planting crops, food plots for the desire of quail. Now there are some ironies of that, of using food plots, especially in West Texas where I work. And I, capture those as two ironies. One is when you need them, you can't grow them. And when you can grow them, you probably didn't need them. It's so dry and hot that the milo didn't mature or it was such a good year that the sunflowers and the double weeds came on. That's one of them. The other one is, and be careful because I tend to talk out of both sides of my mouth on this one. Food plots don't always work, but they rarely fail. What I mean by that is, you may not get up what you planted, but just the soil disturbance you're going to get careless weeds. You're going to get sunflowers just from the soil disturbance. And that leads us into our last action, which is soil disturbance. And we can go out there and, and pull a tandem disc with January or February. We're going to set back plant succession to some of those early successional species like doveweed, sunflower. And so we're going to look good. And we didn't plant a thing out there. Those seeds are in the soil bank. So there's several ways that you can use soil disturbance uh, be that cattle grazing or be that pulling the tandem disc that can work to your benefit if you understand those basics of plant succession. We have several webisodes on quailresearch.org that will allow you to delve more into those specific topics. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Rollins. Excellent discussion today about some of the important tools in wildlife management. And in our next episode, uh, we will continue that discussion and also have a special guest who will join us to talk about the passion of quail and the good work being done in Texas to conserve quail and to promote populations and encourage public interest in quail and quail conservation. As Dr. Rollins indicated, uh, for more information on this topic and archive episodes of previous podcasts, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. Thank you for being with us today. We look forward to our next visit. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.